All right, we are back. Polls are now closing back east. Our preliminary report is that Joe Biden has carried five states. Bernie Sanders has carried two. Mike Bloomberg apparently swept American Samoa. At the moment, Elizabeth Warren isn't even winning in her home state of Massachusetts. More on all that later. We often do obituaries on this program, and we have, with special sadness, one to note today. The passing of Freeman Dyson. Described by The Guardian as a brilliant theoretical physicist and mathematician, we are enormously proud of the fact that we were able to sit down for one hour with Freeman Dyson at UC Davis many years ago. That was indeed a great privilege. At the conclusion of the interview, I said to him, I I hope we'll speak again, to which he added, I hope so. Freeman Dyson returned to the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton, and alas, I never made it to New Jersey in the meanwhile. But by all means, do go to our archives at radioparallax.com and pull up that interview. To quote from his obituary in The Guardian, the physicist Freeman Dyson, who has died at age 96, became famous within science for mathematical solutions so advanced that they could only be applied to complex problems of atomic theory and popular with the public for ideas so far-fetched they seemed beyond lunacy. As a young graduate student, Dyson devised, while taking a Greyhound bus ride in America, the answer to a conundrum in quantum electrodynamics that had stumped giants of physics such as Richard Feynman and Hans Bethe. And if you've ever heard our mention of those two illustrious names in this program in the past, and, and, and we hope you have, you would know that a guy who solves while riding on a Greyhound bus, a conundrum that had stumped Feynman and Beta, let's just say that's a smart dude. And although we have taken our pot shots here at mathematics, at least the way math is taught in America, we, uh, we are, well, we're somewhat in awe of a guy like Dyson. Even when he says things like, the happiest ever school day for him, when he was at Winchester College, was spent working his way from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., mind you, through 700 problems in Piaggio's differential equations. I intended to speak the language of Einstein, he said in his 1979 memoir, Disturbing the Universe. I was in love with mathematics and nothing else mattered. By the way, we hope you will tune in to our interview with Freeman Dyson, wherein we, we asked him about Einstein, who was also at the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton. I'm not going to give away his answer because I want you to hear it. Dyson graduated from Cambridge and in 1943 became a civilian scientist with RAF Bomber Command, which was experiencing rather large losses with each raid over Germany. Dyson and colleagues suggested that the Lancaster bomber's gun turrets slowed the plane, increased its burden, and made it more vulnerable to German fighters. Without the turrets, it might gain an extra 50 miles per hour and become much more maneuverable. Dyson was ignored. He was later to write, Bomber Command might have been invented by a mad scientist as an example to exhibit as clearly as possible the evil aspects of science and technology. The Lancaster, in itself a magnificent flying machine, made itself into a death trap for the boys who flew it. A huge organization dedicated to the purpose of burning cities and killing people and doing it badly. Noted the Guardian, the young Dyson was already convinced of some moral purpose to the universe and remained a non-denominational Christian all his life. That's something I did not know. Now, back in 1947, the story goes, as they were developing what's called quantum electrodynamics, 
first proposed by British scientist Paul Dirac. The next step was to calculate the precise behavior inside an atom. Using different approaches, both Julian Swinger and Richard Feynman delivered convincing solutions, but their answers did not quite square with each other. So while crossing Nebraska by bus, reading James Joyce and the biography of Pandit Nehru, young Dyson saw how to resolve the work of the two men and help win them the 1965 Nobel Prize in Physics. Dyson wrote, It came bursting into my consciousness like an explosion. I had no pencil and paper, but everything was so clear, I did not need to write it down. He later went on to deliver a series of papers that resolved the problems of quantum electrodynamics, but did not share in Feynman and Schwinger's Nobel Prize. Dyson did not complain. I was not inventing new physics, he said. I merely clarified what was already there so that others could see the larger picture. Dyson tackled complex problems in theoretical physics and math. There's a mathematical tool called the Dyson series and another called Dyson's Transform and enjoyed the affection and respect of scientists everywhere. People that knew his work say, he not only did the math right, he did the engineering right. When he proposed something, you had to take it seriously. So it was that people did take his sometimes amazingly far-out ideas seriously. In 1960, in a a paper for the journal Science, he argued that a technologically advanced civilization would, sooner or later, surround its home star with with reflective material to make full use of all its radiation. The extraterrestrials could do this by pulverizing a planet the size of Jupiter and spreading its fabric in a thin shell around their star at about twice the distance of the Earth to the sun. Although the starlight would be masked, the shell or sphere would inevitably warm up, so people looking for extraterrestrial intelligence should first look for a very large infrared glow somewhere in the galaxy. And as reported on this program, when they noticed this dimming of Tabby's star uh, a year or two back, one of the proposals was that, well, they may have built something like a Dyson sphere around that star. But no, that, that didn't pan out. Maybe Beetlejuice. And it's got nothing to do with Beetlejuice. Aww. What struck me the most about the talk we had, which was, I think, well over an hour with Freeman Dyson, was that he was quite an optimist. When we brought up some of the current problems of the world and how insolvable they seemed, Dyson just said, look, a couple generations back, we had to face the possible takeover of the world by Nazi Germany under Hitler. Things have looked worse. We do urge you to read about uh, Freeman Dyson and listen to our interview with him and learn what you can about this singular individual. I wish from my part I could share his optimism, even about things like right-wing politics. Yes, Hitler was defeated, but as we look around the world today, we note the rise of the right-wing everywhere you seem to cast your gaze. Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in the Philippines. In Germany, they're seeing a growing threat of far-right terrorism. Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing allies seem to have, seem to be able to maintain their control over Israel. A fundamentalist Hindu party has taken over India. And then... There's the politics here in the U.S. of A., which we'll have more to say about shortly. Someone else who also passed away, whose obituary I will cut short, was that of Jack Welch, the chief of General Electric, who became sort of a CEO superstar, largely due to his own uh, publicity. Just to give you one example of, of Jack Welch in action from his obit, in April 2008, 
Jeffrey Immelt, who was Jack Welch's handpicked successor at GE, became the target of Welch's blunt talk. GE had missed a quarterly earnings target a month after Immelt had promised investors the company would meet its goal. The disappointment sent GE shares down nearly 13% in a single day, prompting Jack Welch to say that he would get a gun out and shoot Immelt if he allowed GE to miss earning targets again. After making that comment on CNBC, Welch went back on the GE-owned cable station the next day to denounce his own harsh talk, saying, nothing, nothing is disgusting to me as some old CEO chirping away about how things aren't as good under the new guy as they were under him. Forces me to pause and say, who does that remind you of? Except that isn't right. Trump would never admit that something he did was, was out of bounds. Well, at least he hasn't so far ever. And uh, oh yeah, when you're watching uh, NBC or MSNBC or associated stations, you realize you are watching a broadcast organization which is owned by General Electric. That's because back in 1986, Jack Welch bought RCA. And we might have more to say about him one day. Anyway, the main thrust of our show today seems to be viruses and politics and the interaction of the two. I think we might do well to take a brief detour into an article from New Scientist about viruses. It's some pretty interesting biology and may lead to some revolutionary medical treatments. And the piece by Kerry Arnold titled Enemies Within has some facts in it that I'm, I'll wager are going to surprise the heck out of you. A lot of people are fascinated by the fact that uh, that our genes have a story to tell. If you submit your specimens to 23andMe and the like, they, they may inform you of the percentage of your genetic makeup, which goes to the Neanderthals. It's something like 2% on average. But did you know, and I'll bet you did not, that viruses, which have buried themselves into our DNA, occupy about... of our genome. That's right. (laughs) We're one-twelfth virus, apparently. Yes, even you, Mr. McMillan. I don't think so. Note of this article. Most viruses are only temporary visitors. They make us sick, but soon we either get better or die. A century ago, however, biologist Peyton Roos' discovery of a cancer-causing virus provided the first clues that viruses can become resident in our DNA. The discovery began in 1910, when a woman knocked on his door at the Rockefeller Institute in New York, clutching her prized Plymouth Rock hen that had a tumor called sarcoma growing on its chest. Curious about its cause, Roos transplanted a small piece of the tumor into other chickens and found that they developed a highly invasive cancer. Even when the cancer cells and any accompanying bacteria were filtered out, the culprit? Roos sarcoma virus, RSV, a member of a previously unknown group of viruses called retroviruses, which insert a copy of their genome into the DNA of the cells they infect. This meant they can reproduce without making infectious particles that could tip off the host's immune system, something other viruses can't do. The discovery of retroviruses raised an intriguing possibility. If one were to infect a sperm or egg cell, then viral DNA could be passed from parent to offspring through successive generations. Although scientists found no evidence that this happened with the RSV, they soon identified several other retroviruses tucked away in the chicken genome. They named them endogenous retroviruses. 
because they came from within the animal. By the mid-1980s, we'd found them in humans too. It was the advent of genome sequencing in the 1990s that revealed just how common these viruses are. Ever since they first evolved about 500 million years ago, countless retroviruses have buried themselves in the DNA of their hosts to the extent that this ancient viral material, as mentioned before, now occupies about 8% of the human genome. Over the millennia, most of these viral genes have become so riddled with mutations they have become the genetic equivalent of fossils, inert and semi-degraded. There are exceptions. Two families of retroviruses have been identified that under certain circumstances can reawaken and start producing small pieces of viral proteins that can activate the immune system. Not long after this discovery, signs started to emerge that these enemies within might also be contributing to some relatively common human diseases. Some of the first evidence came from people with MS, an autoimmune condition in which the body's own immune cells start attacking the protective sheaths that wrap around nerve cells. In 1989, Hervé Perron at the University of Lyon in France discovered an unknown retrovirus in brain tissue taken from people with MS. Further experiments showed that the source of this virus was the human genome itself. Perron initially named the virus MS-associated retrovirus, but later sequencing of its genome revealed that it belonged to a new family of human endogenous retroviruses, HERVs, that became called HERVW. Virologists in Italy began testing people, people with no known conditions for traces of Perron's retrovirus, and discovered an active form of the virus in 12.5% of the general population. They also tested people with MS and found it in every one of them. And it got more interesting. The researchers found that the amount of virus in the blood predicted the disease's progression and severity. What's more, the response to MS drugs and remission of symptoms correlated with reduced levels of retroviral proteins in the blood and cerebrospinal fluid. This suggested that HERVW might somehow be playing a role. And by the time that a young man walked into... And by 2005, evidence was mounting for the role of HERV in schizophrenia. And when they examined tissue from people who suffered from ALS, they detected RNA from a retrovirus called HERVK in every single one. This was compelling role for the role of retroviruses in ALS but of course still didn't prove causation. The article goes on to note that despite mounting evidence for the role of retroviruses for common illnesses, questions remain. For one thing, it is still unclear what proportion of MS, ALS, and schizophrenia cases are related to the reactivation of these ancient viral stowaways. The article notes that since all humans have these fossil viruses in our DNA and we all age and experience multiple infections, most of us will never develop MS, ALS, or schizophrenia. But could it be that a combination of virus reactivation and a genetic predisposition lead to illness? The article closes by noting that uh, researcher Avindra Nath, who had been an HIV doctor in the late 80s and 90s and had a front row seat to the life-saving power of antiretroviral drugs in HIV, he notes that the drugs decreased the amount of HIV in the man's blood and boosted his T-cell counts was not a surprise, but... The rapid improvement of ALS-like symptoms in people with HIV hinted that these drugs might be effective against other retroviruses. This is pretty exciting stuff, and and I predict that uh, it's going to lead to, if not some cures, some effective treatments. Schizophrenia has been one of the great mystery diseases of, of psychology, psychiatry, and medicine. 
And if it turned out that we could actually cure some people with antiretroviral drugs, my God, what a boon to mankind. All right, let's return to politics for the remainder of the show, shall we? In the wake of Donald Trump's sham trial in the Senate, in his impeachment, he uh, seems to be acting like Popeye post-can of spinach. According to Axios.com, the Trump administration has assembled lists of disloyal officials to purge and replace with pro-Trump alternatives. The lists identify snakes and bad people across the bureaucracy, but especially, quote-unquote, deep state intelligence officials. Last week, Deputy National Security Advisor Victoria Coates was transferred to the Energy Department following accusations that she was behind an anonymous 2018 op-ed describing the Trump resistance within the administration. And how about this? Democrats warned this past week that U.S. election security was in jeopardy after the nation's top intelligence official was ousted and replaced with a staunch loyalist to President Trump. This came just days after the House received an intelligence briefing on Russia's plans to interfere in the 2020 election. In the closed-door meetings with the House Intelligence Committee, an aide to Acting Director of National Intelligence, Joseph McGuire, told members of both parties that Moscow was trying to tip the election in Trump's favor. Trump grew angry after hearing of the briefing, the New York Times reported, saying that Democrats would weaponize the Russia intelligence. Soon after, the president announced that he was replacing McGuire with Richard Grinnell, the U.S. ambassador to Germany and an outspoken defender of Trump. Grinnell quickly replaced McGuire's number two with Kashyap Patel, a former aide to Representative Devin Nunes, who sought to discredit the 2016 Russia investigation. The Washington Post said the choice of Grinnell is alarming. The role of Director of National Intelligence was created after 9-11 to coordinate the work of the nation's 17 spy agencies and join the dots on disparate data and threats. Grinnell, a sycophant with no experience in intelligence, is manifestly unqualified for the job, said the paper. He was a disaster as a diplomat in Berlin, alienating Germans with public attacks on government policies and praise for far-right nationalist movements across Europe. He'll be similarly damaging as intelligence chief and can be counted upon to put the president's personal and political interests above those of national security, said the Post. should also be noted that Senator Bernie Sanders was also briefed by U.S. officials that Russia was attempting to boost his campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination. The Vermont senator condemned Moscow's interference in the 2020 election, calling Russian President Vladimir Putin an autocratic thug and claiming that some of the ugly stuff on the Internet attributed to our campaign may be coming from Russians and not Sanders supporters. In GQ.com, Julia Ioffe asked, why would Putin want to help Sanders? Some analysts point to the democratic, socialist, non-interventionist beliefs. But the truth is, said Julia Ioffe, that Bernie's foreign policy positions really don't matter much. For the Kremlin, helping Sanders achieves dual goals. They believe Sanders will be a weak nominee whom Trump can easily defeat. And just like Trump, Sanders is a divisive candidate with a rabid base useful for starting a pan-American brawl. Russia's actual favorite candidate is chaos. It is curious to note that the cover of the Week magazine this week shows Uncle Sam laying in bed with a nightmare and Vladimir Putin's face in the middle of that uh, nightmare. 
The headline is The 2020 Nightmare with the subheadline Will the Trump Administration Squelch Intelligence About Putin's Interference in the Election? The week generally plays it up the middle, and uh, this looks like they're finally, you know, leaning to one side a bit out of necessity. Their stat of the week for this issue is that 61% of Americans say they're better off now than they were three years ago, the highest percentage when an incumbent was running in a presidential election dating back to 1992. Of course, that was before the coronavirus arrived on our shores, and uh, Mike Pence took command of the response. By the way, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's probably the leading person in the United States government to speak out on, on this issue, was, has been squelched by the White House, which has said that all comments on coronavirus need to come through Mike Pence. We shall see how our economy holds up over the next few months and whether Americans are still going to remain satisfied with how well off they all are. We're also keen to talk about Generation Q, QAnon. The last word section of the week in the current issue has a very hair-raising article about this organization. The article doesn't say so, but it certainly seems as though uh, this this effort of QAnon uh, goes back to, well, Steve Bannon and the Breitbart organization, because this looks to be an overgrown case of Pizzagate. No time to go into this in much detail today, but I do want to note that uh, QAnon has apparently spewed the idea that Donald Trump was recruited by the military to run for office to break up a global cabal of pedophiles, and that special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation would end with prominent Democrats being imprisoned in Guantanamo. Well, anyway, we've taken a gander at what's going on on election night, and it appears that it's being reported as a very good night for Joe Biden. NPR was noting that uh, it was actually Bernie Sanders who had raised a lot of money and had it to spend, although he was certainly joined in that by Mike Bloomberg, but it looks like odd man out was Joe Biden. And yet, he took a bunch of states, beat Bernie in Minnesota, evidently beat him in Maine as well. I'm most curious to note that it appears that uh, Biden edged out Sanders in both Virginia and North Carolina. Virginia is a swing state. It could go either way. North Carolina is very likely to go Trump, but the fact that uh, Biden is polling ahead of Sanders is curious. As of this moment, it appears that uh, Michael Bloomberg may take second in California, edging out Joe Biden. He also took second in Colorado. And also Utah. Of course, Utah is the most Republican state in the union. I'm not sure what that means. I guess what it means is that Bloomberg would probably get a few votes in Utah, but it won't nearly be enough. And uh, from the won't nearly be enough category, it looks like Elizabeth Warren is toast. If you run third in your home state of Massachusetts, I'd have to say, politically speaking, that shows that she has the wrong stuff. Yep, looks like the race is going to come down to three 70-year-old guys. And of those... And of the members of those trio, oddly enough, two of them are Jewish. It appears at this time, then, that the Democratic Party is going to have to choose between a Gentile from Delaware and a pair of New York Jews. Mr. Marilla notes that Shirley has Henry Ford rolling in his grave. (laughs) And it certainly appears that um, the Gentile in the bunch, Joe Biden, benefited from the pulling out of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. A friend of mine speculated a couple of days ago that uh, both of them probably got a, got called upon by representatives from the Democratic National Committee and said, who said, here's what you're going to do. I guess we're going to have to focus on that question of electability over the next few weeks to months. It's a great controversy surrounding Bernie Sanders. We've always admired, her, we've always admired on Radio Parallax the way he often speaks truth to power, or at least as he sees it. 
But yours truly is old enough to remember what they did to George McGovern back in 72. And, well, let's just say it gives me pause. And at a dinner party last weekend, uh, talking about Bernie, the name Upton Sinclair came up. My politically astute group of fellow diners were shocked to learn that Upton Sinclair ran for California governor in 1934. He's certainly well known for being the author of Jungle, a classic of what Theodore Roosevelt called muckraking journalism. We admire muckrakers, by the way. But the story of what happened to Upton Sinclair when he made a run for the California governorship in 1934 is something we'll be talking about in future installments of this program. I didn't realize that he wrote a book about it called I, Candidate for Governor and How I Got Licked. But I'm thinking of snagging a copy and reading up. Upton Sinclair put together a movement called End Poverty in California, or EPIC. Despite his socialist leanings, Sinclair ran for governor as a Democrat, equipped with a bold plan to end the Depression in California by taking over idle lands and factories and turning them into cooperative ventures for the unemployed. Thousands rallied to the idea. With an organization of EPIC clubs, Sinclair overwhelmed the moderate Democratic opposition to capture the primary election. When it came to the general election, however, his opposition employed highly effective campaign tactics, overwhelming media hostility, vicious red baiting, and voter intimidation, along with some high-priced dirty tricks. The result? A resounding defeat in November. Seems to us the Republicans have lost none of their skill in those campaign tactics. Not to say they won't employ them against a Mike Bloomberg or a Joe Biden. They certainly will. It's just that Bernie might be a little more vulnerable. On a positive note as we close, it does appear that Bernie Sanders has secured the support of a majority of California's biggest porn stars. We'll try to have more comprehensive election analysis on next week's program. We've reached out to all the uh, remaining candidates, and so far only Bernie Sanders' cousin Billy has responded. We do hope that on next week's program, he may come on to share some of his insights. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks also go to Wen Zhao, who shared his insights about China with us. We hope he'll be back. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.